Hello, listeners. Welcome back. This is Ruth and Nate. Nate, would you like to say hello? Hello, listeners. So it's kind of been a minute, I would say. It has. Since our last (laughs) recording. And uh, we're sorry, sort of. Life is busy, right? Yeah. Yeah, we've had all kinds of good reasons. Yeah. If people want to just take up a collection and start, you know, paying us for what we're doing, then I would slow down a minute and make sure that's happens. <laughs> but it is fun. So we're back this evening. We're recording another episode. Um, I'm excited about this one. This topic came out of a lecture that I attended in April at UNC Asheville, uh, given by mm-hmm. Brian Stevenson, who uh, many of you are probably familiar with. He's a, an attorney who works on cases defending uh, inmates on death row who had wrongful convictions and has now become sort of a nationally recognized voice on racial justice and a host of other issues in, related to mass incarceration. And, mm-hmm. um, and so he established the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama a number of years ago. So we went to a bunch of us in the art collective Poetic 828 went in April to hear him. And I was just really struck. He said so many things, but I was really struck by his comments related to the idea of proximity and how important mm-hmm. it is for us to be proximate to pain and dislocate, social dislocation and economic dislocation in our local communities. He really, I felt like he was dead on on identifying this sort of major problem in our public discourse, but also in our public problem solving um, of these kind of large scale issues, which was on one hand, we have uh, people in the public debate who are interested in in articulating a vision of, of the problem that really points a finger at the individuals who are experiencing social dislocation and that the problems that they face are related to their own their own personal or even uh, moral failure of some sort. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And but then there's also this struggle that he pointed out, which was this genius of this idea that uh, even when we recognize that systemic variables are in play involving mass amounts of people um, who are experiencing social and economic dislocation. Even we recognize that some of those problems are systemic, we oftentimes don't know how to solve them or endeavor to solve them or fix them with measures that really are completely out of touch with reality. Because, um, and in both, in both fallacies are rooted in the fact that we don't actually put ourselves proximate to social dislocation and we're not physically and living proximate to or relationally involved with individuals experiencing poverty or any Mm -hmm. other kind of social ill. So it was really, (laughs) it made a really huge impact on me and I've been thinking about it for months. And so sort of the Mm -hmm. undergirding of what I wanted us to talk about today. It also reminded me I went home from the lecture and I re- remembered this um, G.K. Chesterton essay in Heretics, and I pulled that back out, and I'm going to actually read an excerpt from it, but 
essentially it's related in that Chesterton pulls out this this thread of proximity and the benefits of sort of thinking and acting locally and orienting mm-hmm. our cultural engagement efforts on a on a small community local scale but he just says it you know <laughs> He's Chesterton, so he says it well. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll just read, um, and I'm going to skip parts of this. And so, if you are a nerd and you're looking this up, I'm skipping huge swaths of what he's saying, but hopefully it'll condense things a bit. He says, It's not fashionable to say much nowadays of the advantages of the small community. We are told that we must go in for large empires and large ideas. There's one advantage, however, in the small state the city or village, which only the willfully blind could ever look. The man who lives in a small community lives in a much larger world. He knows much more of the fierce varieties and uncompromising divergences of men. The reason is obvious. In a large community, we choose our companions. In a small community, our companions are chosen for us. We make our friends. We make our enemies, but God makes our next-door neighbor. Hence, he comes to us clad in all the careless terrors of nature. He is as strange as the stars, as reckless and indifferent as the rain. He is man, the most terrible of beasts. That is why the old religions and the old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when they spoke not of one's duty towards humanity but one's duty towards one's neighbor. Hmm. The duty toward humanity may often take the form of some choice, which is personal or even pleasurable. That duty may be a hobby. It may even be a dissipation. But we have to love our neighbor because he is there, a much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He is the sample of humanity which is actually given us. Precisely because he may be anybody, he is everybody. He is a symbol because he is an accident. And <laughs> I think I read, I think I first encountered this like 10 years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. It was really a catalyst for thinking about engagement in my local community and the importance of loving and serving and knowing deeply the people like literally right around me in a season in my life where I was feeling like I wanted to change the world. (laughs) Yeah. And I felt like this essay had this humble beauty to it that kind of pulled you back into the reality that it is good for everyone's soul to be confronted with the other. Um, And when I don't get to choose my neighbor, that's precisely why those relationships are so, there's so much potential in them. And potential for mutual transformation, you know? Mm -hmm. So there we go. We can get started on all of that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But Nate, you had some initial thoughts too when I first brought this up. So feel free to take any of those and run with them. Sure. Um, That passage like speaks so much for itself. It's, I mean, one thing that came to mind pretty quickly was the way we took this is something I've marinated in for at least since the last election, maybe not before, but just um, the way we think about politics and, and, and have debates about politics. And 
assume positions, political positions that we fiercely believe in and and fiercely argue for in our culture largely have to do with, almost exclusively, uh, I mean, have to do with manipulating large systems or large groups of people, usually on a national scale, um, in, a, in, a, in a national election, certainly on the national and international scale. What's the best policy? What's the best ideology to implement so that our macroeconomy or, our, or the whole population of the United States or whatever will benefit the most? And we have these elaborate arguments and get very excited about these things and we get very angry when somebody contradicts it and um and very rarely does anybody think of politics as the thing that we do on the ground with our daily life Hmm. with the people that we are with but it has to do with how we are with people what Hmm. kind of um human life social or communal life we lead with the people around us and how we're going to regulate that and how we're going to, what kind of boundaries we're going to set up. And, but we rarely ever think of politics as what we do with our day-to-day, hour-to-hour human interactions. Hmm. And I'm just kind of coming more and more to believe that really, if you want to make political impact, I suppose you could go vote once every two or four years or whatever. But for my money, I'm, I'm thinking more and more that I kind of want to think about politics is the way I behave with my neighbors, with my coworkers, with my family members, with the people I know and see on a day-to-day basis. That's, that's like the sort of foundation or baseline. I mean, you can go, you can think a lot of things through from there, which I probably shouldn't try to do here, but, but that's the idea. Um, But what we have done, what we, we, the frustrating thing about the age that we live in is people, Chesterton saw this over a hundred years ago, right. you know? Um, yeah, that was 1905, so, by the way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so it's, it hasn't, um, spoiler alert, it hasn't gotten, the trend he saw was, it got more and more, it, it became more and more prominent. <laughs> right. You know, it was, it did not recede to greater excess now. And like the thing that we live, like we live in, the digital age, right? And connectedness is understood as a digital thing, as a, th- a phenomenon. Connectedness to other people is considered a phenomenon that takes place electronically. At, at the, you know, whether it's um, started out kind of as just texting and being having a phone with you all the time, but then from there we got into social media, and as a that's like as a just a culturally total game-changing phenomenon like the world is not the same since social media took hold and the thing that just a couple of points about what that has done is I heard another great I had just by accident I listened to a, another podcast that happened to touch on some of this stuff just like yesterday and he, he made the point it's this guy Father Stephen Freeman I don't know if you're familiar with him Mm-mm. but he's this orthodox priest that has like a 15 minute podcast that he puts out once in a while. It's just always brilliant. It's really phenomenal. But he talked about, you know, in the social media age, we don't know, we rarely know more than maybe one or two people on our street, if that. Right. 
Um, and yet we call the people we interact with electronically from that we've never seen in our lives, we call them friends. Yes. They're friends on Facebook <laughs> or whatever, or friends on social media. The life of the neighborhood basically is non-existent for a lot of people. Anyway, that I think is a really sharp point that um, our neighborhood neighbors, our physical neighbors are are not really... There are those people that Chesterton was saying we can't choose. We we kind of just are right. <laughs> forced to live near who we live near. I wonder if that's why we don't know we don't know our neighbors that that much because it, it's so we're not choosing them. We want to have complete control over human interactions. And since the neighbor, the next door neighbor, is not under our control, he's not a friend like where we right. Have a relationship of sympathy, as he puts it. Um, it's just kind of random, and that's a little scary. <laughs> yeah, well, it just reinforces our social political silos. We yeah. end up. This is actually a topic that has come up in some hue in a lot of our other podcast topics, and we're just sort of addressing it in its entirety today. But. Mm-hmm. I feel like we mentioned this one time. I know that um, I've read Brene Brown's comments on, um, I think she was, I think this was on a On Being podcast episode where she brought out the idea that when we get caught in these kind of social political silos and we're, we only are, we're only friends with people who we've selected because they already agree with everything that we agree with. That yeah. even in those relationships, they are fairly bankrupt because they're built on right. they're they're not built on this sort of mutual respect and love for one another. They're built on what side we're on and who we're opposed to. And yeah. um, the the nature of social psychologically or the relationships we form with other people. This is so middle school, right? Like when you're in middle school and you're friends with this girl because she also hates this other person. <laughs> I have no personal experience with this because I was really nerdy and not cool. But I saw it happen. I was probably one of the people yeah. folks were hating on. But <laughs> the point is... Um, it's just an adult version of that, right? So those relationships yeah. are very, um, they're built not on trust, they're built on fear. Because just as quickly, you could be the person in the group that everyone else outs. Then You do one thing and then the group says, no, now our bonds are closer because we mutually don't like you. And so it, yeah. it creates very unstable relationships. So it's in some ways, these silos actually rob us of even the relationships we think we have with people that we think we agree with. They're tenuous, right. you know? Yeah, because you're constantly having to maintain your credentials, Yeah, the whatever it is that you bond over. Well, and you're bonding you over like hatred instead of love. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Natural flow of human relationships, you bond over things of mutual affection. And, um, yeah, right. Anyway, I just thought that was, um, that was interesting to point out. And that's definitely at play here with, with our actual neighbors. And it's funny because I was with a group of people who were doing a book study on Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. And Mm -hmm. when they talked about proximity, they immediately went into just sort of what organizations or communities they involve themselves with. 
And it was a totally valid way to think about it. It was funny because my immediate thought was where I physically, like where I'm living right now, my house. And so there's lots of ways to think about it. But for me, I am in the midst of some transitions and I'm thinking about my house and how 12 years ago, this was a neighborhood that I where I really knew the people around me were interesting and different and I wanted to get to know them because they were, it's like what Chesterton says about this could be a hobby. They were the specific kind of demographic that I wanted to be challenged by. And so this is like an interesting little side that we do a little bit. Like I want to, I want to know these kinds of different people. Like even if they're not like us, we're like, well, if I'm going to get to know people different than I am, and they need to be like this. But instead, what's right. happened 12 years later is my neighborhood is gentrified, which let's just be honest, huh. I'm a part of that. Gentrification police are welcome to come by and arrest me. And I, <laughs> I have guilt about it and I'm dealing with it. But um, instead, I have actual neighbors who are very different than I am. And they're not the demographic of the different from me that I wanted to get to know. Okay. Right. Interesting. They're, yeah. They're sort of your typical gentrifiers. And I am the atypical gentrifier or I'm right. the reluctant yeah. gentrifier. <laughs> yeah. We... Just human being. We are despicable in some way. Like this is just to be confessional. Like <laughs> this is, these are the inner parts of my heart just being poured out and public right now but Uh that's just that's what happens is we can even turn our desire to be kind of cross-cultural in ways that are sort of tickle our fancy of like oh I want to know people uh, in this other country I'm gonna go visit them and have this experience and there's there's value to that right but but what about the people that you are politically on on no or, or socially or economically, you have just zero in common with them. And are you willing to hear them out? Are you willing to actually behold their humanity and uh-huh. enter in? Right? I mean, I don't know. Deep breath. Can I do that? That's a big question. Yeah, I kind of have this uh, image of like a lot of a lot of diversity talk for you know it's been common for my whole life um, introducing diversity into a community or how we need diversity, but it's, it's often like a, um, like a signal for what kind of person I am, if I'm Mm -hmm. talking about diversity and when actually faced with a diverse group or an actually diverse group of people, like not a group of people that exist to kind of, uh, confirm my love for diversity, but an actual strangely and, and scarily diverse group of people I'm, I'm thrown in with, and a bunch of them turn out to be a total pain in the ass, <laughs> or I just can't deal with in some way. How do you proceed? Like that's the the life you actually live is the life you want, not the one you talk about. And so, yeah. but for you know, and for most of us, there's like a generalized or like a theoretical thing that we're we like to consider ourselves for, and then. If we were actually, you know, living the kind of life that we're sort of romanticizing, it would be a completely different story. Yeah. I mean, we would really like our efforts to step outside of our comfort zone to look like some kind of inspirational documentary. Yeah, About how we change the world. 
that's it goes back to that like we just want to change the world yeah. We want to be the hero and actually just much smaller than that and less sexy than we ever imagined. Um, yeah. And I, so one thing I listeners that uh, Nate and I discussed in our notes that Nate was a part of many years ago, we did this thing called community feast at my house. And the idea was to try to get, Intent, it was basically to reconstruct this idea of getting to know our neighbors, um, except it was kind of handpicked, curated version style. So we, um, so there's a lot involved with that, right? But we um, invited people of different faith backgrounds, um, cultural backgrounds to come and share a meal. We had 12 people at a table and we had a cap on how many people identified as Christians were allowed to attend. Do you remember that, Nate? Yeah, now that you mention it, I do remember that. There were times where people would call and I'd be like, are you a Christian? (laughs) And they were like, "Uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I think they thought that was their ticket into the dinner. And I was like, I'm so sorry, you can't come. No more Christians. We have too many Christians already. (laughs) We have enough Christians now. Yeah. I, I can't remember we capped it at. Maybe it was like five. That was probably too many. But um, we did that because we're trying to like reestablish these boundaries of cultural power and voice and mm-hmm. helping to protect all the voices um, from being overrun. And so, but we had a topic every community feast night uh, and it was a cultural topic of some sort. And we had a couple of ground rules and then we would have, I don't know, an hour and a half conversation over a meal and some of them were magical. You know, people yeah. stayed still oh, yeah. mulling over the topic. And then other nights, it was 45 minutes into it. You were like, this is this is a dud. This evening is not going well. Not because <laughs> it was adversarial usually, but because for whatever reason, people weren't connecting and hmm. you kept trying and it was awkward. And um, yeah, uh, or... A lot of times it was a dud when it was people just weren't brave. People didn't want to just speak their mind. Uh, yeah. They were too careful. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I remember being surprised oftentimes or how honesty opened up vulnerability among the group members. And so that was an experiment. You know, it's another podcast to evaluate how well that went and how it didn't uh-huh. go well. But. Uh-huh. That was an experiment and we did learn a lot and there's definitely a lot of different, not just even faith traditions represented in that endeavor, but a lot of cultural tradition or background. And you know, you'd have like this mom from Arden, which listeners is sort of a nicer suburban soccer mom area of town who would bring mm-hmm. like a pot roast. <clears throat> and then you would have, we had this guy, maybe he's listening now. Anyway, his his name was Smoke. I think it was hmm. Smoke. No, it was Smokes. Was with was with Smokes. an S. It was Smokes. He would come, and he often forgot to tell me he was coming, so he would just sort of show up. And one time, he brought like a box of donuts, except, you know, the ones from Krispy Kreme that have the twelve donuts. It's like the big box, and then the cellophane's on the top, but it's it always breaks somehow. It doesn't the uh, glue doesn't stick. Okay, so yeah. what had happened was he had gotten twelve donuts several days ago, 
And then oh, the cellophane had broken through, and one of the donuts had, was half eaten by a person. Okay. And <laughs> there were like four and a half donuts in the box of 12, and that's what he brought because everyone had to bring a side or whatever. Yeah. And this guy would just sit beside the sweet soccer mom who brought from Arden with her pot roast. And it was just lovely, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, just the fact they sat together and that this happened was just this mm-hmm. is this is good for all of us somehow. Um, yeah. So, but that was a social experiment that you know, in some ways, it was like I said, it was curated. So it didn't it didn't match sort of the proximity notion that I think that Stevenson's trying to get get at, which is a little bit more natural, um, intentional, mm-hmm. but um, uh, in the flow of our our normal lives. So. But I think part of what is going on when we think about this politically and his sort of Stevenson's indictment of both liberals and conservatives of either being dismissive of social dislocation or paternalistic, basically, um, that idea that we have experts, you know, liberals, we have we have these experts who know how to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. We just need to get experts to solve it, you know, or... The other yeah, side we have being, lots of data. Yeah, or the other side just being just totally dismissive. And when you look at that, I mean, part of the problem of all that is that social and economic dislocation are not even entirely issues that are solved politically, right? So it's like forgetting right, the right. whole point behind all this is that those issues are way more, there's so much more complexity than we think. You know, brokenness really requires some sort of a humanizing social dynamic that is a little bit more holistic, well, much more holistic than just policy. That's a fallacy, too. We assume that policy addresses all of these things. Um, yeah. There, there's actually much more about community, human empathy, you know, relational engagement, and money and programs for sure are super helpful, but they don't actually address the sort of inner ache that, mm-hmm. that fills this sort of crisis. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a human despondency. There's a, that really only requ- the only way to address that, the only balm is actually other humans and you can't yeah, fake right. it. You know, you can't fake it. It can't be humans, fake. <laughs> yeah. Humans that are, actually seeing and hearing the people who are hurting, mm-hmm. um, you know, sitting with them, listening to their stories, all of the things that it means to be with somebody. And we hope, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the best world, I imagine you have maybe a program or a policy that allocates resources somehow for people who need, who are in need um, or who are having are experiencing social dislocation, like you like you say, and and then the but the the way that that it's administered is through uh, this this much, very intimate human contact, face to face, relational. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's I'm sure that happens to some degree in in a world, but I'm I mean to me it's like indispensable. I just know that people need to be with yeah. the hurting. Like if, if you want to solve problems of uh, poverty, racial disadvantage, gentrification, or, or like uh, the ghettoization of neighborhoods, whatever, stuff like that thing, social problems that we hear talked about a lot. There's got to be, there's got to be the human element, the face-to-face 
personal element that is administering the actual yeah. administer administering love when in whatever whatever the need is it has to come from humans not yeah. bureaucracies or people on TV who are claiming to have our best interests at heart or whatever Fam- famous rich people very yeah. often <laughs> well it's dynamic you know right so human empathy and human proximity to pain and brokenness and dislocation breeds well it eliminates the idea that you can dismiss this right you 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 can't dismiss the human hurting in yeah, front of you yeah. I mean you could but it gets extraordinarily <clears throat> mm-hmm. more difficult and it's hard to dismiss and reduce the problem I and mean, that's so we can easily become reductionistic about the issue. It's actually much more complex. And we see that when we're engaged with that person. But then we also, we can't use the expert field, the data-driven answers are also, will also kind of reveal their inadequacy when we're faced with the real person. Mm -hmm. And all of this is actually super related to the work that, Brian Stevenson is doing because it comes up a lot, but just this idea that it also allows you to realize that you are not Mm -hmm. the hero. You are part of the problem. Like there isn't this group of people who are experiencing social and economic dislocation who are, are in a bad spot, right? And then the rest of us, we are broken. We're, we have failed we are implicated. It's a different side of it, but it's sort of that idea that I think it removes our paternalism as we get mm-hmm. proximate yeah. as well. And it, But it gets messy. This is why we don't do it. It's messy. It's uncomfortable. It requires more of us than we'd like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not surprising that the general trajectory from 1905 and Jesterton's comments has just gotten worse um, in terms of our societal push to move toward those who are similar to our own circumstances in our own place. And so I think it's, yeah, it's not surprising because this is really challenging, but it's also really transforming, right? It's the exact, it's just, this is life, right? It's the things Mm -hmm. that are really hard are the things that are shaping us. It's not to say that the empathy is enough. It's like, it's the empathy that actually gives us sort of a holistic understanding of of ourselves. It transforms us. It transforms the way that we move as a society. So it, it goes from there. It starts local yeah, and it goes from there. People see it and then they, they're changed by it. They, you know, somebody else might get an idea. Mm-hmm. It spreads or it can spread, you know. That's sort, of, that's sort of what I think of when I think of it being more, almost like more bang for your buck in terms of politics political influence is that kind of thing over say voting or arguing about an ideology or political policy uh, because particularly because it the human the human encounter happens and then in the midst of other humans and it changes people like it can it can be profound and all of a sudden mm-hmm. five other people walk away like in a daze like I want where where can I have that kind of encounter or where I need to do something like that or, or whatever. They come away with a different yeah. perspective, you know. So we're kind of touching on this um, larger question about, you know, does social or cultural change, at least on the grand scale, is it affected by engagement 
in places of power and influence primarily, or is it affected by primarily instigating local small contingencies? And we're kind of advocating for the latter, I think. I've been reading this book this summer that... I don't know, Nate, do you ever have books where pe- like a million people tell you, you really have to read this book and then you just get resistant? <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to read it. Everyone thinks yeah, it's awesome. I'd... Whatever. I don't think it's great. It must not be great. I just like, you just get stubborn and you just yeah, decide you I've don't want to read it. <laughs> so I've done this with this book and partly because two things. First of all, the book, I'm pulling it out right now because I'm going to actually quote from it. The book is called To Change the World. Here's the subtitle. The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Now, if you're a listener and you're hearing this, you're like, oh my gosh, I love this book. You're just, just (laughs) get in line with everyone else who's told me I should read this book. I'm finally reading it, so just get off my case about it. One of the major arguments he makes in the book that's pretty provocative to me that I'm, I'm still letting sink in is that actually change happens, wide sweeping cultural changes happen from Mm -hmm. the top down. They happen from people who have some piece of the pie, have some kind of power, Mm -hmm. and then they kind of filtrate down into the masses. But this sort of, which is kind of an American idea of, I I guess it's sort of like a a fascination with the hero Uh or this individualist variable and, and value that we are value that we have that these individual heroes who you know against all odds help create unbelievable change so essentially hunter goes into the the reasons why and actually he gives a really compelling argument for why that is actually how cultural change happens and i'm just going to quote a few things that he yeah, says here absolutely. The deepest and most enduring forms of cultural change nearly always occurs from the top down. In other words, the work of world making and world changing are, by and large, the work of elites, gatekeepers who provide creative direction and management within spheres of social life. Even where the impetus for change draws from popular agitation, it does not gain traction until it is embraced and propagated by elites. The reason for this, as I have said, is that culture is about how societies define reality. What is good, bad, right, wrong, real, unreal, important, unimportant, and so on. This capacity is not evenly distributed in a society, but is concentrated in certain institutions and among certain leadership groups who have a lopsided access to the means of cultural production. These elites operate in well-developed networks and powerful institutions. Over time, cultural innovation is translated and diffused. All of this, of course, transpires through networks and structures of cultural production. And that's super compelling, right? Mm-hmm. I, I see that and I, I tip my hat yeah. to that argument. And I think I had struggled with, I, had, I really struggled with it. Maybe the, I'm just really, um, there's a lot of democracy in my yeah. veins perhaps. But, and I want to believe that the way that we change the world is one by one, right? And regular Mm -hmm. people (laughs) deciding and changing things. I think I came to the conclusion that part of what what makes that assertion of top-down influence so difficult is because I still am holding on to this, and many of us do, the assumption that sort of the goal 
in our endeavors and our life endeavors and our endeavors to enact change are the only thing that matters is sort of massive societal change, Mm -hmm. right? Made by a lonely hero or an unlikely group of people. And actually there's meaning and value in local small scale culture shaping. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think Hunter is actually saying that that isn't important. I think it's he's he's revealing in our, our own assumptions that actually all that matters in our engagement with culture is what will last on some sort of historical right. level. And that's the yeah. lie. You know what I mean? So, and very few people actually are able or even small groups of people are able, able to make historic cultural changes when they're when they're intentional about it, you know, when they're thinking, I want to change yeah. the world. And you can waste your life being consumed by those questions when you have neighbors beside you and you have the chance to not change history, but to change a street. Right. And that there, and I think that's what Christianity holds for us is that idea of the small and the non sexy, right? The work of doing small scale social investment that is unnoticed and isn't flashy and requires us to have to get into a humble social space you know and to tend to the work of loving our neighbor is so much harder than these grandiose ideas and and efforts which can be wonderful <laughs> i'm not discounting that but just that maybe our goal shouldn't be wide sweeping cultural historic change yeah the vast majority <laughs> of people are not really going to have much of an influence on that. No. And, so, and we, the, I think, the, again, no. the problem is we all think we're about to be famous or something, or we're going to be world. I mean, the, intrinsically, the phrase changing the world has a intrinsically positive connotation to it for some reason. To right. that end, everybody, a lot, like way more people than ought to be, are considering themselves people who are going to change the world. They're taught that. They're taught they're supposed to be that. They're given like yeah like tools and practice and you know methods for doing that it's it's very and yet 99% of the people really should not be trying to operate on that level <laughs> yeah i think the older i get the more i really am grateful that i'm not changing the world because i just don't want that responsibility and i don't know what in the i don't know what the heck should happen yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> i have no clue I'm just just taking it a step at a time here, you know? And and the, the other part about the Hunter book was I, I think it's really bringing in play for me the significance of the small community, the significance of, of proximity and in, in lo, lo, locality or local community building engagement in tandem with policy change, right? So that's it's like both, you know, it's a both and one of the things that Stevenson has realized in his work is that, um, you know, he's an attorney, so he's working top down, Mm -hmm. right? But he's also getting proximate. That's helping to, to him to understand the wider systemic issues that that are at stake. And so, um, and he, so he's been working on this top down and at a certain point in his work, he realized that actually there's a whole other battle happening from the bottom up and that's the narrative Mm. battle. And so he talks a lot about the narrative battle and that's why he's running a law office, but he's also running um, a museum and a memorial. Wow. 
right? Because museums and memorials are places where this sort of local human empathy uh, and understanding yeah. mm-hmm. play out, you know, where people begin to understand. And so he sort of starts seeing this is just as equally, if not more important, part of the puzzle mm-hmm. of culture making. And so the narrative battle isn't solved legally. You know, it's not solved right. by po- yeah. uh, policy. And that's not happening. Um, we, we're we not gathering um, to have these hard, it, not just about this issue, but any issue really to have hard conversations in our neighborhoods and exposing ourselves mm-hmm. in those sorts of ways. I just, it's just like a, it's an interesting thing to me because I think Hunter is pulling out some a reality, right? There have to be people are going to there's more weight to what someone says in the New York Times than the actual right. Citizen Times. Mm-hmm. That's just reality. Um and so there are certain institutions there where elitism actually plays a role in driving cultural change and in in the playing field isn't level. But at the same time, um huge changes on a qualitative level are happening. In, in in local uh, communities, and that is extremely meaningful culture shaping work. It's just not historic right, yeah. level, right? Um, but it shouldn't be seen as like the B side no. of cultural engagement. But it was helpful to kind of think through that, like, oh, I think it's a both and, right? It's not a, it's it's not one side or yeah, the other. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm definitely sold. I was sold before, but I'm. Even more so on reading Just Mercy, the the book that Ryan Stevenson wrote that was so popular and is sitting on my bookshelf right now and has been for a year or so and I haven't gotten to it. But in the next month or two, I think I will. (laughs) Yeah, our artists are working on an exhibition this fall um, to kind of creatively imagine and prophetically call our neighbors and friends and community leaders to bring back our lynching Mm, memorial mm -hmm. from Montgomery. And so for listeners, you can check it out. Um, You can look online for Equal Justice Initiative and I'll tell you more about it. But, but we're working on that project and, um, and planning a field trip down there. So all of this has been really kind of living in our, in our blood the last um, couple of months and we've been dwelling on it a lot. So yeah. And I mean, the irony is, I mean, we're doing a podcast right now, which isn't very uh, involving human empathy. <laughs> because we're talking on the phone? Because <laughs> we're talking on the phone. There is some empathy between the two of us right, because yeah. we're in real time. But then there are other people like sitting in cars or I don't know where in the world they are. And they're listening to this. And thank you so much for listening. And I just want to say I'm really sorry that this isn't really um, as human as it could be. But it is funny because this is one of those uh, yeah. silos, right? <laughs> you you found this because you were already actually friends with us. And maybe not. Mm, you should yeah. tell us that. Maybe you're from Argentina and you're thinking, I just picked this out. Or I picked it out because it was the opposite of oh, what yeah. I would normally pick out or think about. And I wanted to be challenged. I would love to know. So, uh, for listen- I mean, yeah. Who are you and why are you listening? <laughs> I know. Right. Just go on our iTunes and make a comment. Uh, well, neighbors and friends who are virtual and listening to us through something 
that I can't explain or understand. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. For listening. And keep following us. We promise we're not going to leave you permanently. We're just, we had a little yeah. gap there. And thanks for being patient, honestly. It's been great to, if you're still listening, I'm just so grateful. Yeah, leave us a review <laughs> or something on iTunes or whatever platform you use. Yeah, yeah. that would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, okay. we'll yeah, see you see next, next time. time.